Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will just wrap up my thoughts on A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Um, Not too much to say about the content of the last 100 pages, although I will mention here um, that it's got a great appendix. It's got um, the longest appendix, I think, of any of the, the volumes in this series. Uh, it doesn't have, well, it's got three different sets of documents here. Um, one is dealing with rights and claims in the, in the West between England and France. The second is, uh, the, well, the second and third documents, which make up altogether about 70 pages, are different witnesses, witness accounts and records and, and letters from the Siege of Louisbourg, which, of course, is the most decisive and crucial battle in the King George's War. Um, So just let me give you the the overall role of a half-century conflict in the overall history that Francis Parkman wrote here. Um, Obviously, this is the final one he wrote. It was written, finished just a few years before he died. Um, It basically was filler um, because when he finished the Count Frontenac book, he wanted to jump straight to his book on the Seven Years' War called Montcalm and Wolfe. And he thought he might not live to finish, so he wanted to get that done. And that's the book we're going to look at next. But when he didn't die, he went back and, and wrote this history of Queen Anne's War, and which is the War of the Spanish Secession, and King George's War, or the War of the Austrian Secession in the New World. Um, and also, he talks about various other, much of the context, setting much of the context for the Seven Years' War, both in the the French and English strategic positions, uh, the various alliances or not they had with Indian groups, um, the proxy wars that were fought. That, I think, is one of the most important reasons you might want to read this book is because it does detail and document the large number of proxy wars that were fought between Indians and either the French or the English over the course of this 50-year period from 17... 100 to, to 1750. Uh, these proxy wars were bloody, genocidal in many cases, involving the complete destruction of Indian communities and just a very, very important part of, of American history um, and Canadian history. So that's the overall picture of the book. I think I've already sort of talked about that um, when I introduced it. Um, now, this section of the book just carries on where uh, with the rest of King George's War. Now, these aren't official breaks in the book, obviously. I'm doing the 100 pages break. So I I left up the last time with the Siege of Lewisburg. And, uh, and this is the most crucial battle in King George's War. Um, now, Queen Anne's War left Acadia split between the English and the French, and it left the claims of each to Acadia unresolved and contested. So um, all sorts of problems were here. One is it wasn't clear that what the mainland Acadia territories, who they belonged to, they were kind of held by the French, but the British claimed them in the Treaty of, that would have been the, 
that would have been the Treaty of Utrecht, right? I've got to keep these straight. Yeah, the Treaty of Utrecht uh, kept that unresolved. Um, so a lot of the fighting in King George's War was an attempt to kind of resolve the Acadia question. You also had the problem of uh, many French-speaking people in the British-held parts of Acadia. So that was also something that would not be fully resolved until the Seven Years' War. Now, um, if you want to look for sort of like early modern antecedents to 20th century issues, I think uh, in geopolitics and just, uh, you know, you have them here in this book. And I think there's three that I want to highlight here. And that's, I guess, the main thing I, I think you might get out of this, or at least the main thing I got out of reading A Half Century of Conflict. The one is, you know, proxy wars. Proxy wars are commonly seen as kind of a extension of Cold War politics, right? Where you have these two superpowers, um, you know, in a way there might be relevance there. I mean, it's, it's different than the Cold War in that France and Britain went to war directly often. But when they weren't at war, they kind of remained in this Cold War status, you know, and they fought wars by other means. And one of the main ways they did that was through allies or through neighboring states. Obviously, this happened in the Cold War, whether it was in Afghanistan or Korea or, or Vietnam or in Latin America. You have um, what diplomatic historians have called proxy wars and quite a lot of them. And they're all over the place here. Uh, many of them are not really well known to your average consumer of history unless they really get into this Canadian history or really into the 18th century American military history. But they're there and they're really relevant to many of the Indian communities here, many of which were just left utterly devastated um, by, by the result of being pawns essentially in, in great war conflicts. Great War Imperial Conflict. So proxy wars, I think, is a really, really key issue. A second would be, maybe there's four things I want to talk about here. The second major issue would be um, like logistics in war. Um, something I'm going to talk a little bit about when we look at the, the, the Duke de Anville um, effort to retake Louisbourg after it's, it was taken by the British. You know, that was just a poorly executed and planned and supplied and maintained military expedition, right? And we think about like how big the armies of Napoleon got and how much logistics, supply, uh, disease mattered in the fate of empires. Um, obviously a key feature in modern warfare. I mean, that's really such, that's, you know, a huge part of military planning is just getting supplies, right, to the right people, making sure the troops are fed, uh, maintaining supply rooms, whether they're overseer or not. And in this time, it just really wasn't all worked out yet and theorized. I guess Clausewitz is writing around this time. And he's, if you haven't read uh, On War by Clausewitz, you know, I urge you to look at it. Or at the very least, you could do what I did, and that was read the, the very short introduction um, about Clausewitz. And that little book, they're really great, by the way, if you haven't read those little, um, they're published by Oxford University Press and they introduce, there's hundreds of them and they introduce a little issue. I, you know, the, their book on Clausewitz really makes clear that Clausewitz's relevance to modern war is not just this war's politics by other means line that often gets quoted. It was that Clausewitz thought a lot about logistics. He thought a lot about supply. He thought a lot about just maintaining armies on the field as how you are successful in war. And that's how a weaker power could, could win. And both sides in King George's War and even Queen Anne's War made horrible mistakes in just maintaining these distant supply lines. And it was like just, just part of maintaining this transatlantic empire. 
um, and most of these countries weren't really prepared or didn't really put the thought into or the time or the resources into this aspect of warfare yet. And by the 19th century, of course, is going to be crucial to the success of, of armies. Uh, now, another theme that uh, really comes clear when you read this stuff on Acadia, which, of course, is something we think about in the 20th century, but maybe not so much when we look at previous periods, is, is kind of the total war. Um, not all of New France was in total war during this. And there's, I'm not sure how far you can push this model, but certainly, you know, in Acadia, you had uh, guerrilla warfare, um, armed ins insurrections against a, a perceived occupying force, uh, occupied populations that resented the new rulers and, and maintained their loyalties to their home country and then fought these wars of attrition against them. Certainly a lot of the French in British Acadia fought this. And of course, that's going to lead to this final theme I want to mention here, and that is ethnic cleansing. Now, the story of the ethnic cleansing of the French Acadians is a story for the next volume. It's, it takes place during the Seven Years of War, and that most ethnic cleansings take place during war, uh, under the cover of war. Um, but the ground was laid for it here, and it's something we got to really think about as we get into the, the experience of the Seven Year War in Acadia. But just the, you know, the, the, the states having this ability to, to identify a population by some kind of cultural, ethnic, religious trait and saying you can't be here for security reasons, for, for cultural reasons, for, for our empire to survive, you, you can't be here and therefore you must leave, right? I, you know, ethnic cleansing, such a horrific part of 20th century history, justified in all sorts of ways. But it came down to this idea that this population, for whatever reason, national unity or how we identify as a nation or a perception that these are enemies of the, of the state, they have to go, right? And in pre-modern times, you, it was difficult to do. You couldn't really just pick up and remove an entire population based on uh, like an ethnic identity. All kinds of atrocities in pre-modern history that we can point to, but total ethnic cleansing is, is kind of new. And we think of it in the 20th century with the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust and the various other genocides we've seen since then. But boy, I mean, the British ethnically cleansed Acadia. It's pretty clear to me here. Uh, French-speaking people. And it's going to be a story we're going to pick up for in a couple episodes from now. I think the second episode of Montcalm Wolf will talk about that. Or I'll say a little bit of what Parkman has to say about it. But I think these are all themes that come clearly in this book that, you know, really make me think of the geopolitical diplomatic history of the 20th century in a lot of ways. So, um, so in that sense, I think this is a useful book to read, not just as a bridge between two important stories uh, that, that Parkman wanted to fill later in his life, but, um, you know, there's some deeper meaning here we can get. Um, now, as for the events of the last 100 pages or so of this book, there's really only um, three things three or four things to talk about, four things um, in the course of five chapters. So I'll just briefly uh, go over them for you because they're just the events of King George's War. Parkman is, is nothing if not detailed and, and erudite in, in documenting things. He's a little bit too much at times and it's, it's getting a little um, tedious at times for me to, to read this. You know, this. I don't know if I would recommend doing what I'm doing with Francis Parkman reading it all in a handful of weeks. I might recommend a more 
slow burn to to appreciate this book but um i'm doing it this way but anyways uh we have these descriptions here. The first would be the final taking of Lewisburg. Lewisburg is, of course, on modern-day uh, Nova Scotia. Um, is it Nova Scotia? Yeah, I think so. Um, this was the part of, the, of Acadia that was still French, and it was a major seaport, and it was a place from which, from the British perspective, there was a lot of, of piracy coming from Lewisburg, or privateer activity, we should say. And so it was a very strategic port to take. It was kind of extending out into the Atlantic. It helped defend the St. Lawrence Valley. So taking Lewisburg was a great achievement of the British in King George's War, the major kind of territorially significant battle. So that's described. And then we get Duke de Anville's expedition. This happened in 1746, and Parkman devotes a whole chapter to the Duke de Anville. And he essentially was, this was the French effort to retake Lewisburg because it was so important to their war effort, to their overall strategy in the New World. Because really their strategy, as I talked about last time, was a chain of forts from, from Louisiana to Lewisburg, right? All the way across the Mississippi and the Great Lakes. And hopefully they wanted the Hudson River too to kind of break up the British colonies. And they never could quite achieve that. But, you know, but certainly through the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, St. Lawrence Valley, say to um to lewisburg this kind of crescent moon shape a string of forts um and to lose the end of that not only threatened quebec but it, you know it broke up it it damn it threatened that whole chain it's like almost like not quite like dominoes but it weakened the whole chain of a fort so uh the effort is made here to try to take it back and this is the chapter i read where i really thought a lot about provisioning disease, plague, and just how it affected the rise and fall of empires in this period in ways that, that really should be paid attention to. I'm sure some historians have written in some detail about the medical history or the, the technological history and provisioning and supply in, in armies at this time. But, you know, it's so much just a casual reader thinks of this stuff as really, this is what the 20th century war was about. But, you know, that is why the, well, well, I don't know if that's why it failed, but certainly the, the, the clearest reason why, the most obvious reason Duke de Anville's expedition failed is just because the troops that landed in Acadia to retake Lewisburg, they died of diseases, they were malnourished, ill-supplied, and defeated. Now, whether they could have succeeded had they been better supplied, I don't know. It doesn't seem entirely likely to me with the troops they brought to bear there. But that's what happened to them. Um, you know, and it's pretty horrific stuff. Uh, quote, after the storm of the 14th of September, provisions being almost spent, there was thought that there'd be no hope for La Prom and her crew. But in giving up the enterprise and making all sail at once for home, since France now had no port of refuge in the western continent nearer than Quebec, relations were reduced, rations were reduced to three ounces of biscuits and three of salt meat a day. And after a time and a half of this pittance was cut off, there was a diligent hunting for rats in the hold. And when this game failed, the crew, crazed with famine, demanded that their captain demanded of their captain that the five English prisoners who were on board should be butchered to appease the frenzy of their hunger. The captain consulted his officers, and they were of the opinion that he was, was not to give his consent. The crew would work within, would work their will without, or if he did not give consent, the crew would work their will without it. The ship's butcher was accordingly ordered to bind one of the prisoners, carry him to the bottom of the hole, put him to death, and distribute his flesh to the men in portions of three ounces each. The captain, walking on the deck in great attention all night, found a pretext for def 
deferring the deed till morning when a watchman settled off the daylight and cried, a sail. The, provincial, the providential stranger was a Portuguese ship. And as Portugal was neutral in the war, she let the frigate approach to it within hailing distance. And then they were basically able to get some supplies from the Portuguese to allow them to stay alive without butchering the captives. But that's how on the edge they were on this, just this one ship. But the whole expedition was plagued by these kinds of uh, problems. All right, the next chapter is called Acadian Conflicts. And this is uh, just other campaigns and battles fought in Acadia, as, as well as some of the popular resistance by the French in Acadia against the British there. An interesting um, window into some of the you know, the day-to-day -day struggles for, you know, for dominance in this divided land of, of, of now British and French Acadia. So ah, um, now the major leader here you need to be aware of is um, Shirley. Shirley was the general who was in charge of the British forces in Acadia. And then we have um, a couple chapters about the, like the Hudson Valley area. And the first of these is called War and Politics, which is just about uh, the fighting in Sar around Saratoga and uh, up and down the Hudson, because that was a long-standing French strategy here, is to try to, you know, control the Hudson to kind of have that chain of forts then going into, you know, down the Hudson River, which would then split up the British colonies. That was the hope. Um, you know, the same strategy the British tried in the American Revolution uh, failed then too. Um, but uh, so the first chapter is called War and Politics. The second. And the final chapter of the book is called Fort Massachusetts. And that is a fort in Western Massachusetts that was taken by the French. But the overall outcome of this frontier fighting seems to have been the establishment of a much stronger British military presence up and down the Hudson and in that kind of New York, uh, Massachusetts, New England frontier um, with, with France. So it helped to kind of militarize that border a little bit, but there were French gains and there were um, some British, you know, basically held the ground there. And then the book kind of just abruptly ends. Uh, there's no chapter, for instance, really on, on the peace. And why is that? Well, it's because the peace itself didn't do that much. Um, the, the treaty uh, was the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle. And this was the treaty that ended King George's War, ended the, the, the fighting between Britain and France. Um, I, I don't know. Is that the treaty that ended the whole war of... Austrian secession? Let me check. Yeah, that, that, that treaty ended the whole war of the Austrian secession. And I think I talked a little bit about the outcome of that war last time. Um, but as for what happened in the New World, well, basically nothing. Uh, Louisbourg was returned to France, and instead the British, or the British were able to um, take Madras in India from the French. Now, fighting in India would remain, the French still had a position there, and that would remain until the Seven Years' War. So another outcome of the Seven Years' War was the removal of the French from India, as with the removal of the French from Canada. Um, so that went back, and all the other borders were basically restored. So the colonial borders went back to their pre-war status, and all the issues that were left standing, like the fate of Acadia, the fate of the French under British Acadia, the control of the West, control of the Great Lakes, the, you know, the, the Hudson Valley, all these things remained unresolved. And so therefore, we're not surprised when within essentially a decade, uh, a much more titanic struggle breaks out uh, in the, the French and Indian War. Um, and that would resolve these issues finally. 
So anyways, that's it for now. Uh, as I said, these final episodes in this series may be rather short because it is a lot of, of narrative military history. But as I think of interesting things to say, I'll try to share them with you. Um, so that does it for my thoughts on A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Uh, the next episode will begin a six-part finale to this series where we'll look at Montcalm and Wolfe. Um, it's a 600-page book, so we'll look at it in six different parts. Um, and we'll talk about the Seven Years' War in North America in all its gruesome detail. So if you have any of your own thoughts about Queen Anne's War or King George's War or any of the proxy wars fought between the British and the French in the early half of the 18th century, uh, let me know. Send me your thoughts. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, and that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.